You're listening to Badass Coaching, a podcast of the Ad Astra Coach Alliance. I'm your host, Andy Huckaba. Our discussion and exploration today centers on the topic of how hard is it to coach employees and clients when they really just want the answer? I'm your host, Andy Huckaba, and joining me is Teresa Schwab, a badass coach and a partner with the Ed Astor Coach Alliance. Hello, Teresa. Hi, Andy. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you. Teresa and I share a lot in common in that we both teach and coach groups of people or in organizations on management. This is an area that we, we, we spend a lot of time trying to help people understand how to be better managers and supervisors. In this work, we oftentimes run into this question of, you know, how do I manage my time, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And everybody comes to my office all the time asking me questions. And I want to just give them the answer and, and have them go away. The problem is oftentimes is they give them the answer and then they come back tomorrow and ask for the answer again or another answer or whatever. And it becomes a cycle that's very, very hard to break and, and very difficult. And there are lots of problems we think in this particular approach. So part of our hope in this podcast today is to discuss this issue of why it's so tempting for us to just fix the problem, give the answer, as opposed to coaching our people through the problem, the solution, and where they ought to go. And what does that look like and why is that important? So, Teresa, I want to uh, open the mic to you and ask you, what are your thoughts here and where's your mind on this particular topic? Mm-hmm. Oh, Andy, there's so much in what you just said that I think is so important. And you're right, you and I have done a lot of teaching um, around management skills. And one of the things that we teach on is about how to coach employees. And it's really about how you use the tools of the coaching profession, the tools that we're taught and the skills that we're taught as professional coaches and use them in your supervisory tool belt as one particular tool that you might use to develop the capacity of the people that you manage and supervise. And you know, one of the things that sparked this conversation in the first place was that one of the people that was in one of my trainings reached out to me and we had a really long conversation about how hard this really is. And when you're a manager and supervisor in an organization, there are a lot of pressures that you experience to give people the answers. You know, a lot of people feel like they're promoted in their organizations because of their competence and what they bring to it. So they feel compelled to offer answers and advice and solutions. So it's the easy answer. It's also efficient. It gives people, like you said, I sort of get them in my office, I answer the question, I get them back out, then I can get back to my work again. But there's so much value in using coaching skills with your employees, and it's really hard. And that was part of my conversation that I had with this person was that this is really, really hard. I get it. I understand why it's important, and it's really, really hard. 
And I think I reached out to you. So we started to have this conversation about what's hard about it. And there's a lot that really is hard. And I think for you and I who use coaching skills on a daily basis and we coach people professionally, it can be hard sometimes to understand why it's so hard for people who are just learning the skills to use that skill set inside an organization because of all of these pressures. So maybe we can unpack a lot of that stuff today as we're as we're starting to talk. Sure. Let's. Uh, I want to start in one place, and that's looking at the manager or supervisor, mm-hmm. and kind of what's going on in their head. What are the the triggers and the drivers that uh, are are present when someone comes to them and asks them a question, ask them to solve a problem for them or whatever. What, what's present in that particular situation? You know, I think first of all, we are in a, we live in a culture. We are, we are swimming in a sea, if you will, of problem solvers. So culturally, when people come to us with a problem, our first reaction is naturally to solve it, to give advice, to give our opinion, to tell somebody what to do. It's just what we do as human beings. We and why feel, is that? Well, because we feel valuable, I think. When uh, we solve problems, it makes us feel like we provided value. It makes us feel like we are productive, that we're smart, that we're competent. It just makes us feel good. And you've got this situation, right, where traditionally people are promoted because they were good at the job they did before and they haven't switched the the, the switch they haven't flipped the switch to now begin to operate like manager they're really a super performer in those management jobs and they're bringing their competencies to the table and they gain great personal value absolutely in Knowing the answer, being the smartest one in the room, uh, being the super performer. What's a better way to do this? You know, it's so true. What you've described is so true. The pressure is great, I think. And it's a hard switch when you become a manager or supervisor. There is an article that I read, and I use this a lot in training. It's in, from the Harvard Business Review. And the title of the, of the article is, if you're not developing people, you're not management material. And I love it because it's a little bit provocative. But basically, it says that managers, supervisors inside organizations are really the linchpin. They are really the people in the positions of power to not only develop people, but in that process of development, make them feel good about what they do so that they are engaged, they're motivated, and they are the power layer in the organization Mm. that keep people excited about staying. And, And many organizations are concerned about not only attracting talent in the first place, but retaining them once they get there. So I love the provocative title of this article that, you know, if you're not developing people, you're not management material, which basically says exactly what you said. When you become a manager or supervisor, it's not just about your technical expertise. It's not just about your technical competence anymore. Now it's about all of that. And how do I use what I know and transfer some of the other or build in other skills 
to supplement what I know so that I can develop, grow, and build the capacity of other people to do what they do and do it well. Yeah, I love that you're landing on that idea from if you're not developing people. I've had this discussion many times, uh, especially in my classes, where we talk about uh, being more coach-like as a manager and, and working with your employees and and all of these different styles and techniques and so forth that help them hopefully become a better manager. And inevitably what happens in these classes is someone raises their hand and asks the question, when am I going to have time to do my real job? Mm-hmm. And there's a gasp in the room, right? And, so and, and, I, and I kind of laugh because I've heard this question many times. And my response is, this is your real job. Your job is to develop people, is to help your people perform at the highest level they possibly can. And without those people, you wouldn't have a job (laughs) as a manager, right? You wouldn't have that management job if it weren't for the people who Mm -hmm. you're trying to develop and help perform at the highest level they possibly can and so there's kind of a reset that happens in these classes that they begin to realize oh my job is not to be the super performer with all of the answers my job is to develop people yeah and I I hope that a portion of those people in the class walk away and really take that seriously yeah actually I was just going to say can I tell you a story about that So I'll give you a specific example. I was doing training. um, This was pre-pandemic. So it was in a very small room and we were in very close space together. And we were having this very conversation. And this woman who was sitting not maybe five feet away from me sort of turns her body, closes her eyes a little bit, and then tentatively raises her hand. And I was like, oh no, what's happening? So I said, you know, I called on her and she said, what if you just realized you're not cut out to be a manager? And I was like, well, how long have you been managing? Fully expecting six months, a year. Do you know what she said, Andy? 10 years. Oh my. <laughs> She'd been co- she had been supervising for 10 years. So I thought, oh no, what have I done? What have I said that has scared this woman and made her feel like she's not cut out to be a supervisor? So I said, well, So what have you heard in this last few hours that's making you feel like you're not cut out to be a supervisor? And she said, because all I do all day long is solve people's problems. And she was completely exasperated. And I said, well, why do you do that? And she said, because it's my job. And then she got really silent for a second. And she said, is that my job? And I said, you know what? I don't think it is your job. Now, are there times that you're going to have to solve problems? Absolutely. Are there times you're going to have to step in as a supervisor or manager and negotiate and mediate and give advice? Absolutely. But every time, I don't think so. I think your job is about building the capacity of the people that you manage and supervise to do the jobs that they do. Your organization is paying you to build capacity they're not necessarily paying you to solve problems all day long. And she was like blown away. 
but it, this whole thing made her question, like, why am I, like, why am I doing this? Like what, this is just exhausting. I can't get my work done because I'm just, you talked about it as a vending machine. It's like right. this vending machine. And you might share that too, because I think that's a really good metaphor for how this, how this plays out. Well, I use the metaphor of a vending machine. I said, the, oftentimes uh, the supervisor or manager is like a vending machine. And people come into their office and they throw a coin in and they get a candy bar. And tomorrow they come in and throw a coin in and they get a candy bar and so forth. The, the, the metaphor, obviously, is the candy bar is the fix or the, mm -hmm. the advice, right, given from the manager. And the question becomes, does that ever end? Probably not. If you continue down that road. But what does it look like to develop those people as they come in? So they come in and, and they want the candy bar, or the advice fixed. What does it look like to turn the question around mm -hmm. on them? And they go, well, how do I do this? Is oftentimes the question, yeah. you know, it's, it, it could be more specific than that, but how do I do this? And as a more coach-like manager, you might say, what do you think we should do? Or what do you think you should do? And they pause because they haven't heard that question before mm -hmm. because it's been a vending machine mentality. Yeah. And then they come up with an answer because they're capable, they're, they're able to come up with that answer. It's just for them simpler to come in and feed the vending machine. Yeah. For you, it's not necessarily simpler because even though it might be quicker and more efficient one time to give them the answer, it might not be quicker and efficient 10 times to give them the answer. And to your point, you're not building the capacity of that person by always giving them the answer. You yeah. want them to do the mental gymnastics. You want them to think and to engage in solving a, a problem or an issue so that they grow and they own it. Absolutely. And if you just hand them the answer, they don't grow and they don't own it. Yeah, absolutely. Let, um, can I share another story? So this is a very simple story, I think that illustrates the power of coaching. And this is actually a parent-child story. Uh, but I think it's a simple illustration of the very simple shift that it that that sort of illustrates what you're describing. I, I have three boys, and when they were younger, we were sitting around the dinner table one night, just having dinner and you know, nothing special, just sort of talking about our days. And out of the blue, one of my kids said, Hey, somebody's being mean to me on the playground. And it was just sort of this like, you know thing that they slipped in and it wasn't a big deal, but immediately my mama bear instinct sort of kicked in and I could feel my spine getting stiff. And immediately I was in like fix it mode. And this was not long, probably after I started coach training. So I instead took a deep breath and sort of, you know, um, unclenched the, all the muscles that were clenched up. And instead I said, you know what, that really stinks. I'm sorry that's happening to you. And just sort of let him react. And then I said, you know, let's assume that that happens to you again. 
you know, if it's happened once, it's probably going to happen to you again. And I said, if it happens again, what would you do next time? And he thought about it and he said, well, you know, next time it happens, probably what I would do is I would be very strong in my, you know, stance and just say, please stop what you're doing and ask him to stop. And I was like, okay, well, that seems like a perfectly reasonable solution. What if it doesn't work? And he said, well, hmm, okay, if that doesn't work, then I guess I could go to the playground teacher and ask for their help. And I was like, that sounds like a great solution. That's awesome. What if that doesn't work? You know, what would you do next? And so he thought about it and he was like, well, I guess if that didn't work, then I would wait until recess was over and I'd go back to my classroom teacher and I would ask for her help. And I was like, dude, that's awesome. Like, that's a really great plan. Like, go do that. And then if it ever becomes an issue, come back and let's have a conversation about it. And I never heard anything about that again. But the, the illustration here is that originally what I wanted to do was say, you tell me who it is and I'm going to go to school and I'll set a meeting with your teacher and I will sit down and make sure that this is not a problem for you. But instead, and I don't claim to be a perfect parent, but in that moment, <laughs> what I allowed him to do was come up with his own solutions, think it through, get really like engage himself in the problem solving and figure out how to do it on his own. And, and ultimately my job as a parent, and I think as our, our job as a manager and supervisor, again, is to build capacity of other people to think for themselves, right. to come up with their own solutions that are more authentic to who they are, that engage their brain and have them think so that next time when they face that issue, or even a similar issue, they now have a whole set of tools that they didn't have before because they weren't my answers, they were theirs. And to your yeah. point, people are smart, creative, resourceful, and whole. They can figure stuff out if, if we give them the opportunity and step out of their way and just become their partner instead of that advice giving that we, that we tend to step into. Yeah, I love that story. And I will say it brings to mind a question that I often ask, and actually it's a good question for all of us to ask, whose work is it? Mm. If it's not my work, why am I taking that work? And so as a manager, what happens oftentimes is because of the vending machine mentality and yeah. the models or lack of models that managers and supervisors have had in the past, they steal the work from their people. Mm -hmm. that's, a, uh, that's a really harsh statement, but in reality, that's exactly what they're doing is they're stealing the opportunity for their people to grow, to yeah. explore, to gain more capacity, as you said. It's such an insidious message that we send when we solve someone's problems. And it's a message we don't intend to send which is, I don't think you're smart. I don't think you're capable of coming up with your own solution. By solving somebody else's problem, that's the message we're sending to them when we steal their work away from them. We're we are saying to them, I'm smarter, I'm more experienced. I don't necessarily trust you to come up with your own answers. And I think that is not the intention. I think most of us 
problem solve because we want to help people. We want to make them better. We want to take away their pain. We want to make it easier for them. Right. Our intention, our, our intentions are good. And there is this more insidious message that we send. So if we can step into that role and say, you know what? I actually believe you're smart and capable. I think you can actually come up with this on your own. Let me help you think through this a little bit. Let's take a little bit different approach here. It, it's such an empowering message that we send and it's very subtle in the way that we send it when we step into that partnership role and give the work back to the person who actually has the issue or the challenge or the opportunity, it's just a very different message. Yeah, I love that. That's absolutely true. I wanna bring to light a, a little passage from a book called Coach the Person, Not the Problem. This is from our friend and, and mentor, Marsha Reynolds, mm -hmm. who is a, a coach and author and and uh, has spent some time with both of us. And I think we've all learned a lot. Well, I wanna read just a, a portion of this. It's titled uh, in, in the section in the book, Coaching Versus Telling. Mm. So I like this idea of, you know, instead of advice giving the, the idea of telling and the kind of the mental picture that that gives versus coaching. She says, many leaders think it is easier to give advice than to take the time to coach others to find their own solutions. They don't realize they are wasting time instead of saving it. When you tell people what to do, you tap into their cognitive brain where they can analyze your words using what they already know. If what you suggest relates to or affirms their current knowledge, they're likely to agree with you. They might have needed outside confirmation to fortify their confidence before acting. Offering ideas might sound like an efficient way to guide people's action. This is true, but you also run the risk of making them dependent on you for answers or approval before they act. You won't create independent thinkers. Mm -hmm. And so I like that, just that the way that she lays that out. There's one other one that I like quite a lot, and this comes from The Coaching Habit, and it's Michael Bungay uh, Stanier. Uh, I actually love this book, and, and if you haven't read it, uh, audience read it. Uh, I don't care whether you're a coach or a manager or, mm -hmm. or, or somebody on the street, it doesn't matter. There are so many great things in here. He says, even though we don't really know what the issue is, we're quite sure we've got the answer they need, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so, mm -hmm. so there's, you know, this whole idea of we're so certain that we know the answer that it's so tempting for us to just dish it out. Yeah. Here, here's the problem. And this is what I oftentimes tell um, people who ask me questions and want me to give them the answer is I have a perspective on that. I may even have an answer on that. What I don't know is whether that's the right answer for you. So as you begin to look at this and wrestle with this and, and, and engage in this, you may come up with a different answer than I would give you that you believe is stronger, that you're gonna own more, that's gonna help you grow. When people hear that, they begin to shift their perspective just a little bit. That's a, that's one, you know, technique is to 
flip it back and realize, yeah, I'm a smart guy, cool, but I don't have the answers to everything, yeah. nor do I have the perspective of the person or the, the background of the person who's asking me the question. Mm-hmm. And so to assume that I have that answer is uh, oftentimes a bad assumption. It's better to coach them through that and, and allow them to discover what they need to discover. Yeah. You know, earlier you were saying the necessary shift when you move into management and supervisors, that, that supervisory role, that it's a little bit of a paradigm shift. And when you're developing people, the skill set is different than those technical skills. So this paradigm shift and where we kind of started is hard. You know, if it's something you've not done before and you've always given answers to move yourself into a role where you start asking questions and giving the work back is really hard. In many ways, what coaching does is offer this skill set, number one, that helps you slow down a little bit to sort of diagnose the situation with the person so that you make sure that your perspective and their perspective are on kind of on the same page. So even through coaching questions, you're trying to understand what is the real challenge here so that you do have a little bit better perspective about things and they have a little bit better perspective about things. Because when you come in and you hear one set of facts, your answer may be solving the wrong problem. That's the other issue with giving solutions is that if you don't have the full picture, you may be answering the wrong problem. But I do think this paradigm shift is really hard. And what I love about what you just said is that gives you some language to shift the paradigm with the person that you've created this relationship with. So if you for years have created a relationship with somebody where they come in and you give them answers and suddenly you say, I don't know, what do you think you should do? That person's going to freak out. And I've heard this from people where they're like, I think they're mad at me. I don't know what just happened in there. I go in, they usually give me an answer and they just said, I don't know. What do you think? I think they're mad at me. So what you just did though, is say, wait a minute, let's shift this paradigm together. You know, maybe I do have an answer. Maybe I do have a perspective but let's engage in a different kind of conversation today. You know, let, let's, let's sort of explore this from your point of view and let's see where you land. And it, it just like that language that you've offered gives a little bit to the, it sort of says to the person, we're going to, we're going to have a different kind of conversation today. And I'm going to turn this around on you. So the other person is like, okay, wait a minute, this is a different this is different than what we've done before. So they don't feel so freaked out about why this conversation is suddenly different than it's ever been before. Because I think that's one of the things that's hard about the paradigm shift is people are like, okay, I can buy into the idea of coaching. I can buy into using these coaching skills, but how do I shift a dynamic in a relationship that has been built on question and answer, question and answer, advice giving suddenly when I'm coaching them and they don't know what that is. But you've done a really nice job to say, here's some language that you could use to sort of indicate or signal to the person you're managing or supervising, we're going to have a little bit different kind of conversation today. Well, so there were so many pieces in what you just talked about. And I want to address a couple of those. And I'm interested in your response to them as well. One of those pieces had to do with the paradigm shift. Mm-hmm. And the paradigm shift is not just a shift 
physically moving from or title-wise moving from an employee to a manager. That is a, a shift, right? Mm-hmm. But everybody has their own interpretations of what that looks like and what that means. But the shift behind that is a movement, at least in a healthy, healthy transition, is a movement between besides being a performer to being someone who is a manager or a server, serving the people who mm-hmm. work for you. It's hard to make that shift. I remember in my life when that shift happened and it was like a lights, light just switched. That yeah. I grew up, I literally grew up on stage, right? And I was a performer. And when I got into the business world, I was a performer. And perform, perform, perform. That's where my identity was. It was all about me. But then when that switch happened, which you know actually took a while to happen, when it happened, all of a sudden it wasn't about me, it was about other people. That's a paradigm shift in somebody's mind. It's the way you show up. It's the way you look at things. And all of a sudden, it's not about me performing. It's about me helping. Yeah. And it's It's about them. It's about their, you know, using their talents and helping their growth and back to developing them to be the best they can possibly be. Mm -hmm. And that is a huge huge paradigm shift. How do you respond to that? Yeah, it's absolutely a paradigm shift. And it's a hard one for some people, the way that you've described it, there's some loss associated with that. There's some identity that has to be shed in that process. I had this conversation with somebody once about this very issue. We were kind of talking about this transition and what it means to move into developing people versus being an expert or a technical guru in whatever you do. And again, another woman at the front of the room who was like, just like, ah, like making these like, you know, big size. And so I called her and I said, what's, what's happening? What are you thinking about? And she said, I used to be really good at what I do. Like I was a technical expert. This was a person in financial planning and accounting. And she was like, I'm really good at what I do. And there used to be people calling me from all over the country, looking for my advice and asking me how I did what I did. And then I became a manager and I feel like an idiot and completely incompetent every single day. I have no idea what I'm doing. And it's exactly that, that exemplifies what you just described in that paradigm shift. When you are really good at what you do and you're really competent at what you do and you get promoted and suddenly it requires a very different skill set that nobody prepared you for, by the way, it can feel like it rocks your world. Well, nobody prepared you for it. And unfortunately, many organizations out there lack the models of what a good manager looks like, what they do. People have not had that model because the model they've had are the people that preceded them who were super performers. And they never knew how to flip that switch. And so uh, that need for better models out there is, is crucial, I think, for people to begin to feel comfortable with this new role. And it's got to start somewhere. 
mm-hmm. right? So one of the burdens on management is to model what you hope to, to instill in your people. And that is not to solve everybody else's problems or take other people's work away. That is, how do you engage people? How do you develop people? How do you grow people? I think partnered with this, another model shift that I think organizations need to get better at, it's sort of tangentially related, is you know most organizations don't have really good ways to reward or um, acknowledge people's performance without promoting them into management. You know, some people don't want to manage. Some people don't want to do this work. Some people aren't cut out for it. They really just want to do their technical job and they want to be really, really good at that. But most organizations aren't good at rewarding and acknowledging performance without also promoting and then putting them in a manager role. where they're ahead of people. So I do think organizations need to get better at figuring out how do I reward performance, make sure I keep really good people without promoting them if that's not what they want to do. So I get the best people who really want to engage in this kind of work into those roles in the first place. So I think that's a whole nother conversation we could have just about the structure systems, how they are designed to promote and acknowledge people's work, because not everybody is cut out to do this work. Not everybody wants to do it. Some people just want to do what they do and do it really, really well and not step into developing other people. So organizations need to get better, I think, at figuring out how do we reward and acknowledge performance for people who don't want to take on a people development role. Yeah, I agree with that. And you see it oftentimes in the the technical fields. You Mm -hmm. see it with uh, uh, IT people and you see it with uh, take a high performer in the IT uh, group and you make them a manager or her a manager and you lose a really strong technical person and you gain a really poor manager. And until that person grows up or doesn't in terms of uh, that new role, it's really not a good situation, but this happens over and over and over again in organizations out there. And so what does it look like to have a career path, a path of rewards, uh, of advancement that doesn't misplace people within the organization? What does that look like? And how can the organization embrace that as being okay, that this person's not pigeonholed or stalled in one position the rest of their life that they do have growth there and what does that look like and how do we as an organization celebrate that as much as we celebrate somebody being made a manager or supervisor and to bring this full circle that's a great way to actually use coaching is to have those kinds of coaching conversations with people so you understand what are your career goals what are you really good at you know, here's what management really requires. Do you see yourself being able to step into that? Um, Do you want to step into that? Those kinds of questions where we're exploring and not just making an assumption that somebody wants a promotion and wants to develop people and that they'll be really good at it. Because I think people think that supervising people is just easy. And it really is one of the hardest jobs out there because people are complex. They're messy. They are messy. Absolutely. And if you're not prepared for that, 
it's really hard, but I think it's, it's another avenue that we could start to really get better at using coaching skills to help people grow their capacity to move into those roles to develop other people, if that's what they indeed want to do. So we've covered a lot of things in our discussion today, and probably not near enough, right? Because this is a complex issue. But the, the way we phrased it at the beginning is, how hard is it to coach employees when they really just want the answer? And if we circle back around and hit some of the highlights, what would you say those are? Ultimately, I think what coaching does is develop other people's capacity. And when you're being asked to think, it can be difficult, both for the person who's asking you to think and for the person that's being asked to think, especially when the paradigm is really about just efficiency and solve a problem and go away. So it can feel hard both for the person who's using coaching skills, but for the person and, and also for the person who's being coached. So as easy as it sounds, it's also really, really hard. And I guess my best advice is to step in, use language that you offered earlier, make sure that you're naming that this is a, that you're using a different set of tools with the person. So they know what's happening, ask them to join you engaging in a partnership and having a different kind of conversation, ask them to think in ways that you're believing in them as smart, creative, resourceful people. And there, you know, there are times when coaching isn't the right skill set. Sometimes you need to manage. Sometimes you need to tell people what to do. If there's a crisis situation or the stakes are really high in a particular situation, or there's a policy or something that says, this is what you have to do, then just do that. But in situations where there are a million ways to get to the answer or the solution and failure is an option, and we can learn from that and grow from it, then step into coaching. Those are the opportunities where it can be really fun and engaging. I think one of the biggest takeaways I'm having from this conversation is also what you read in Marsha's book is that we think it's efficient. And in the, in the short term, it might be, but it's the long term. You know, if that person continues to come into my office over and over and over and over and over again, I, I, that's not efficient. So it might take a little bit more on the front end to step in and have those kinds of conversations. But once you build the capacity over time, they're not going to be stepping in as much. And when they do step in, they're going to know you're going to ask them some questions. So they're going to have been thinking about this. They're going to have been more thoughtful before they walk into your office in the first place. So it's a, it is a shifting dynamic in the relationship that might take a little bit more time in the beginning, but over time you build this capacity, it really should reduce the amount of time that you're spending with people and increase the quality of the conversations right. and the thinking that you're doing together. It really is more fun when you mm -hmm. let go of that need to know all of the answers. So great insights, Teresa. Thank you so much for your thoughts and your wisdom. Don't be a vending machine out there. Be a coach when you're working with people. Remember that 
your job as a manager is to build capacity. And you do that by more fully engaging your employees in the work, in, in the, the solution, as opposed to just doling out the answers that you think are the right answers for that particular thing. Uh, it's tempting to do that, but it's something that we, there's a better way to do it. And what I hope you'll find in this is I hope you'll find some freedom to slow down a little bit, to really focus on your people and what they need and less about your own performance in the organization. That feels like growth to me. So thank you very much, Teresa. And we'll see you on the next episode. All right. Thank you, Andy. That's the show. Thank you for joining the Ad Astra Coach Alliance podcast, Badass Coaching. If you want to find out more about the Ad Astra Coach Alliance, go to www.adastracoachalliance.com.